Hello, this is Gerard Robinson from beautiful Charlottesville, Virginia. It is a still beautiful place, but a little cloudy, lot of uh, gray skies. There is nothing but leaves all over the place. Some would say it is the uh, season of the witch as we get very close to <laughs> Halloween. And speaking of the season of the witch. Oh, I, I knew. <laughs> I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. It was just there for the taking, Gerard. But listen, so I'm going to share. I'm going to tell you how I'm doing. I'm going to share with my listeners something that I shared with you before we started recording, because maybe listeners will have advice for me. I am. Do, I was doing okay, Gerard, until this morning. Mm-hmm. I found a bat in my house, mm-hmm. a creepy Halloween bat. Okay, I didn't actually see the bat. But I found evidence of the bat, and we all know what I'm talking about here. Mm-hmm. I found evidence of the bat. It has been confirmed. So I would like, I don't know, maybe maybe listeners who have bat experience could get me on social media and tell me it's all going to be okay because it's, I, you know, I don't know. Will, will I be able to sleep tonight until they can come and tell me this is taken care of? I, I'm concerned. Other than that, Gerard, I'm fine. <laughs> Well, maybe maybe in a very interesting way as we get close to Halloween, you're calling your friends home. They're leaving evidence. They're leaving bat scat. <laughs> and so they're there with you. So you never know. Think stranger things happen this time of year. You're really on today, my friend. Bat scat. I it wasn't <laughs> there, there were a lot of other things that went through my head. Um it wasn't bat scat. Uh-huh. Those who know me well know that I uh, sometimes my language is a little bit questionable. Anyhow, anyhow, we're, we've got a really cool author on today. Second Halloween show of two. Uh, we're, we're keeping it creepy. And, um, and but a great author who's going to talk to us about Salem, which is closed for business this Halloween. Um, Governor Baker and the mayor of Salem have, Salem have said, uh, stay away. Actually, here. In Massachusetts, you drive down the highway and there are build, big billboards that basically say Salem is closed for Halloween. Don't show up. So we're all we're all trying to figure it out. But this is going to be a really interesting conversation coming up. So timely. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. We, of course, have stories of the week to get to first. Um, I'll dive into mine because I I really um, this story. So North Carolina is a state that I think doesn't get enough uh, discussion when we talk about education and and, and the, the strong kinds of opportunities that different states are creating for kids. And um, North Carolina, as you know, it has, um, it's got charter schools, it's got two different private school choice programs. One is uh, a voucher called the mm-hmm. Opportunity Scholarship. And, and the other is actually an education savings account that's for students with special educational needs. And as you know, Gerard, the Opportunity Scholarship, which provides um, you know money for low-income students to attend private schools, if they would like, um, it has been under fire. It's come under fire as many of these programs have, even at a time when more and more families in the midst of this pandemic are saying, please help me, I need access to a different school. And that might be a private school. And so, well, the governor has topped off the opportunity. They've opened it up to, to a few, to more children. Um, and those, and it's, those seats are going. Um, we're still getting claims. There's a lawsuit in North Carolina saying that 
The Opportunity Scholarship limits religious freedom and discriminates against students based on sexuality and religious beliefs. So important claims, right? Mm -hmm. Claims claims that we have heard before in Florida, in Indiana. I mean, take your pick. So we know what the post-Espinoza attack on voucher programs is, and it's pretty much the same as the pre-Espinoza attack on voucher programs. The thing about this story, and and I don't want to be too dismissive because I think that those of us who really even um, though we support, you know, freedom for private schools and we don't want to inhibit private schools or overregulate them, we, of course, think that children should be treated fairly and every child should be valued no matter his or her beliefs, orientation, et cetera. But the fact of the matter is that when these claims are made, whether it's against schools in North Carolina or schools in Florida or schools in Indiana, there's usually very little evidence to back them up. <laughs> There's usually very little evidence that schools are actually discriminating against students based on their sexuality or their religious beliefs, but it's it's a hot and fiery claim. The good news here is that um, the House Speaker Tim Moore and Senate Leader Phil Berger have actually asked the court to dismiss this constitutional challenge to the state's school choice program, um, which I think is an amazing thing. This show of support, I think, is really, really important to the many families who want and need and use the Opportunity Scholarship Program, including those who um, who you know, could claim they're being discriminated against, but aren't who, who fall into the categories that this lawsuit is talking about. So that's my story of the week. Shout out to North Carolina. And we're going to keep watching it. I've got some news and good news from, in fact, your home state of Michigan. So yeah. in, in the October 26th edition of the Detroit News, Beth LeBlanc, uh, in a story titled Detroit School District Released from State Oversight After 11 Years. And so the Detroit Financial Review Commission voted unanimously to basically grant uh, waivers to all oversight over the Detroit Public School Community District and Detroit Public Schools. Yes, there are, in fact, two different systems uh, in that city. And for the first time in 11 years, you know, the people at the local level are going to have more to say, not only over the budget, because they could have said we wanted to do A with the budget, and the review commission could say, no, we don't think so. So that's a big push. But this story has to be really put in context. So for 11 years, they have found Detroit's found itself under an oversight commission. But if you go back to the 1990s, there was a big push uh, for something called mayoral takeover uh, in the city. And so from the 90s to the present, Detroit has gone through a number of changes, primarily driven by two factors. One, a declining population in the school system, in part because there's a declining population in the city. And the second is over money. You know, money is a big thing in education. You know, Cara and I, you and I have talked a lot about mm-hmm. money on this show. But just think about 2016 when then Republican Governor Rick Snyder signed into law a, uh, a bill uh, that said 16, $617 million dollars will go to bail out the district and help pay off, get this, $467 million in operating wow. debt and provide $100 million, $150 million in startup funds for the Detroit Public School Community District. But you go back to the 70s, you have the, uh, the Milliken case one and two in Detroit. So 
Good news moving in the right direction. Um, Superintendent Vitti, who I met when I was commissioner in Florida, he was working at that time in Miami. Uh, he's from Detroit, so he went back home. And it's good to see a, a hometown guy get a win. Yeah, it is. You know, more work to go, but a step in the right direction. Good to see so many Detroiters going back to Detroit. Like this is a big thing that I've noticed when I've gone home and I'm talking to friends and good to see folks who had migrated to the suburbs going back to the city to take it to, to you know, be part of what I, I really, really hope is a is a revival of that amazing place. So um, I'm, I'm heartened to hear it, Gerard, and I really hope that that this move is the right move. And it, it sounds like the time is right. And boy, let's go Detroit. <laughs> let's go. Let's go Michigan. It's time. The whole state needs a boost. And especially to receive this news in the middle of a, of, of a pandemic when all of our schools are suffering. It's 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 good news. So thanks for that one. Coming up, we're going to continue with our creepy theme for the week. Actually, it's our guest isn't creepy at all, but she's going to talk to us about the Salem witch trials, the truth of the Salem witch trials and a little bit about to how and why they might resonate today. So right after this, we'll be speaking with Stacy Schiff. And listeners, we are incredibly pleased to have with us Stacy Schiff, Pulitzer Prize winner and the author most recently of The Witches, Salem, 1692, which the New York Times hailed as an almost novelistic thriller-like narrative. Her previous book, Cleopatra, A Life, was published to great acclaim in 2010, appearing on most year-end best books list, including the New York Times top 10 books of 2010. It also won the Penn Jacqueline Brogard Weld Award for Biography. Also a number one bestseller, Cleopatra was translated into 30 languages. Schiff is the author of Vera, Ms. Vladimir Nabokov, winner of the Pulitzer Prize, Sana Supere, a Pulitzer Prize finalist, and A Great Improvisation, Franklin, France, and the Birth of America, winner of the George Washington Book Prize, the Ambassador Award in American Studies, and the Gilbert Chouinard Prize. Her books have won numerous prestigious awards and honors, and she's received fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and was a director's fellow at the Coleman Center for Scholars and Writers at the New York Public Library. Schiff has written for The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Washington Post, The New York Review of Books, and The Times Literary Supplement, and The Los Angeles Times, among other publications. As always on The Learning Curve, we like to bring you folks who know their stuff and who are who are prolific. So welcome, Stacey Schiff. We're so happy to have you with us today. Delighted to join you all. And especially at this time of year. So I mentioned um, some of your some of your work, especially most recently, The Witches, Salem, 1692. Um, here I sit, of course, as our listeners know, in Boston, Pioneer Institute in Boston, not too far from Salem, a place that it sounds like is near and dear to your heart. So let's let's jump in, especially it's now what's the date today? I believe we're recording this on October 27th. So you've best described the Salem witch trials as, um, as the best known, least understood chapter of American history. And I think it's a, it's a really fascinating chapter of American history. And a lot of people don't, don't really know the truth. (laughs) So could you share with our listeners first, why you decided to write this book and then share with us the, the facts of the event and why is this such an important episode of our past? Um, sure. I, I, you know, it's it's an event that we all feel we know well, but our our 
misconceptions abound. It, the delusion begins in Salem, but it's by no means confined to Salem. It spreads to 24 communities. The alleged witches don't burn, they hang. Um, they're not all women, or even for that matter, older women. Five of the 19 victims are men. And naturally, a man is said to be at the center of these diabolical conspirators. Um, so when you think about it, the name hardly applies at all. It's not even a hunt in that people pointed fingers at each other, often at blood relatives, at mothers, at fathers, at siblings with whom they lived, and the authorities took it from there. And then, of course, there's the fact that it's become somewhat tangled up with Halloween, which this is arguably our only national tragedy that comes with its own holiday. Um, <laughs> how I got there, um, I'm from Massachusetts and fully educated in Massachusetts, and I was appalled by how little I knew. Um, which is often the way I've come to a subject. Um, Andover, Massachusetts is the town, interestingly, that is the most severely affected. One in 10 residents of Andover was accused of witchcraft. And I had lived wow. nothing of this. I know there's, at one point, I think the minister, the Andover minister discovers that he's related to 55 witches. I mean, it's just, this is, it, it gets, <laughs> the first part of the epidemic is based in Andover. And I knew nothing of that at all. Um, as you mentioned, the previous book had been, my previous book had been about Cleopatra. So I was thinking a lot about women's voices and how women's voices are heard and distorted. And really, um, Joan of Arc aside, this may constitute the only moment in history when teenage girls are running the show, um, ever, for better or worse, everyone is hanging on their every word. Um, and also, this was about, I'm guessing this was 2010, when I started to think seriously about Salem, and it felt at the time eerily familiar. Um, oral culture, like internet culture, feeds on rumor, both very effectively so hysteria. Um, this was well before QAnon, but I think you can see my point. If you can mm. leave a tale about Satan worshiping pedophiles running a global sex trafficking ring, um, well, you see my point. <laughs> so, absolutely. You know, we've come to live with other epidemics of finger pointing and flurries of false charges and toxic clouds of suspicion, but this was really the original sort of American moment. And I think that speaks to its importance. The trials, um, they feel only more relevant, um, if disturbingly so, today. So it's yeah, absolutely. And not just because not just because it's Halloween. In fact, this is the, the QAnon parallel as well as as well as the just finger pointing. And it sounds like I, I love that you mentioned Internet culture. Could you speak a little bit more about those parallels? I don't know if you remember a controversy online called the Slender Man issue. Yes, very creepy. Mm -hmm. it's oddly not dissimilar to what happened in Salem. But that ability to generate fake news, um, the ability to send up a, a cloud of suspicion and concoct something out of thin air was very much like what we, in retrospect, of course, see as the trumped up charges in Salem, where there was, we can talk about this, there were much, was much greater grounds for accusing someone of witchcraft. There was a history of such accusations. But that ability to be able to conjure up this kind of fear and conjure up this kind of very pointed suspicion um, by whispers among the community um, just felt to me so similar to the way we today create these kinds of um, these kinds of fake accusations. It's fascinating. Now, I, I want to ask you about Puritanism, but I think I wonder if maybe in your answer you can touch on what some of the accusations actually were at this time. But, um, you know, one of the themes that runs throughout this book 
is, is how Puritanism is really fundamental to understanding American character. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about um, what we know, first of all, about Puritan theocracy through our, through our fiction, through our culture, and, and how we should actually be thinking about it. You know, I suppose that when you look at what, what most of us, I think, base our sense of Salem on is Arthur Miller and the Crucible. And I think that's probably what we base our idea of Puritanism on as well. Um, and it pays to remember always that Miller, like Hawthorne, was writing fiction. Um, much of that play obviously is invented. He makes up characters, he changes chronologies, he makes up the incantations in the woods. Um, but it has in it that fiber, certainly, um, which we would today called um, call close to the heart of Puritanism. And that, and that Hawthorne touches on, certainly. Um, and Hawthorne leaves us this probably the greatest legacy of Puritanism, which is this shelf of literature. Um, these were people who valued education, who revered books. If you couldn't read, you couldn't pray. So literacy mattered. Um, and one of the stunning things about these years is that this is possibly one of the most literate society until that moment in history. Um, you needed an educated populace to found a republic. And that was something, obviously, that every one of the founding fathers knew, but about which New Englanders were, were the most vocal. Um, democracy was not possible. It simply isn't possible today without an enlightened citizenry. Um, so I guess that is one of the greatest takeaways here. Oddly and perversely, this misfire of justice is based on a bunch of learned men's close reading of texts or misreading, you might say, of texts. But this is a very literate society, which is right at the heart of, of the Puritan of the Puritan legacy. And I suppose the other um, the other greatest influence is the the anti-hierarchical thinking, something, um, again, of which Salem stands as a kind of counterexample. Um, a Calvinist had no patience for anyone um, who stood between him and, and the supreme magistrate. There was no church hierarchy. Um, the emphasis was on community or on a community of independent-minded equals. So authority could be questioned. Um, we couldn't have had an American Revolution um, without that idea, without Puritanism. So these were men who prefer a church without a bishop who come naturally to preferring a state without a king. Um, and that's for starters anyway, although this was a year, and this is the perverse piece of it, where, where that gets stood on its head. This is a year, 1692, when people are afraid to speak their minds, when they feel they have to kowtow to authority, and in many cases feel that the authorities know best. But what that year in particular um, imparted, imparts to the national DNA certainly is um, not a love of democracy, but a hatred of authority, because the authorities take us um, so far off the rails. Very good point about the educated citizenry uh, in Massachusetts at that point. High literacy, everything you said is so on point. You know, I'm, I'm wearing a, a different hat of thinking in the 1640s when uh, a group of people in Massachusetts, in the, in the Bay Colony, created some of the first education laws. Uh, one was called the Old Eluder Satan Act. <laughs> and I tell people, if you're looking at accountability and the devil is your standard, yeah, then there's some real issues going on. But you fast forward to a later date and we're talking about the Salem, 
and what's taking place there. So how did a society based on piety and learning devolve so quickly into hocus pocus, superstition and injustice? And what cautionary tales should Salem reveal to students about the strong gravitational pull toward human fear and terror? Well, I guess um, we should probably talk for a little bit about what a witch really was in those days, because, you know, we all tend to think, oh, this was superstition, this was hocus pocus. Um, and this, but the, but the fact is we have the wrong kind of witchcraft in mind. We have modern craft or the Wicked Witch of the West or Professor McGonagall, um, Mm -hmm. I think, in our minds. And and what we overlook quite simply is that not only was a witch um, a biblical construct, was she a creature out of scripture, um, someone in whom you were meant to believe as plainly as you believed um, in heat or light, but that one, but that a a Salem villager and a Massachusetts resident in those years would have felt that he or she um, was doing his godly duty by pointing a finger at a witch and that there was something um, deeply cathartic about this experience and deeply affirming about this experience of expunging witchcraft. And um, to that is a corollary, which is that uh, the Massachusetts ministers felt largely that this was a sign, this is American exceptionalism gone, gone awry, this was a sign that there was something special about New Englanders, that they were visited with this tremendous affliction. Mm. That affliction was proof um, of how deeply special they were. So there was a pride here in this infestation of witches because clearly somebody, it wasn't that they had misstepped necessarily, it was that someone had their best interests at heart and was looking at them um, with particular favor. Interesting. So most of the people accused of and condemned for witchcraft, and thank you for giving us a better idea of what witchcraft was at that time. So we're looking at witchcraft in 1692 in Salem. Most of the people accused and condemned were adult women, uh, while the first accused was a slave named uh, Tituba, and the accusers were teenage girls. Could you talk to us about the role gender and race played in the witch trials, as well as what colonial Salem teaches us about hysteria and how it could basically just unwrap itself into uh, warp its ideas of justice in society. It's such a, such a great question and such a fertile subject. Um, certainly, the, the, I should say that the three first people named um, are very vulnerable members of society. The, the, the girls begin to the girls in the household of the local minister begin to show signs of something, which we would today probably um, call conversion disorder or hysteria, but which was then understood to be enchantment or witchcraft of some kind. And after a period of time, they named three names. They accused three women. And the people they accuse are the three likeliest people to be voted off the island. They accuse a homeless beggar woman who tends to frighten children. They accuse a very litigious neighbor um, who'd married her farmhand. And they accuse Tituba, the slave whom you mentioned, who um, works in their household. And in fact, with whom they have slept and prayed and eaten for years. So someone who's very familiar to them. Um, and she is the only one of the three. And this is such a crucial piece of the story, I think, which we tend to overlook. She's the only one of those three initially accused who confesses that she's a witch. The other two women are indignant. Of course, they're not witches. Tituba not only confesses that she's a witch, um, but says she's phoned to Boston. She mentions that she's had accomplices. She talks about technicolor animals and spectral cats. She has the most extraordinary story. Um, And all of those cats and all of that animal life will reappear in other people's testimony. 
So we can't know precisely um, why she coughs up this rather extraordinary opulent tale. But if you think about it, I mean, she would have had less leeway, obviously less, she would have been less likely to be able to hold her own under interrogation. Her, her master is insisting on an explanation. She's been put in prison. Um, when she comes out, three different men had been appointed to take down her testimony, which sounds to me like they were expecting a very good story in advance. Um, and she delivered on every one of the prosecutors, for every one of the prosecutors' leading questions, she had an answer. I mean, if he asked, did you fly among the trees, she would say, we were going too fast, I didn't notice. But she had her answers ready. And she didn't disappoint. And she had, every, she had more reason um, than anyone else, obviously, not to disappoint. So that's one piece, of, um, one piece of the racial puzzle here. And immediately after her testimony, grown men begin to see unearthly things. Um, which brings the gender question um, into play. Both men and women uh, will confess over that summer to witchcraft. Um, but it must have been next to impossible for a woman who is, uh, for a farm woman who was interrogated by the most eminent members of the community, it must have been almost impossible for her not to confess. And you can practically hear, um, you can practically hear some of the fear on the page from the suspects where they're, they're trying to give their interrogators, trying to please the interrogators. And for me, one of the most, most heart-wrenching of those is a teenage girl who's carted off on horseback to prison and on her way, her brother is on one side of her and her minister is on the other. And they're both urging her to confess to witchcraft. They're both saying, look, we know you're a witch. Why don't you say so? So in this situation, I, it, you really didn't have a chance. And generally the women more than the men tended to believe what the authorities told them. So that um, as the story gets woolier and woolier, um, it begins to converge and everyone seems to settle on the same narrative. Um, but at that point, the women begin to play secondary roles. Um, sorcery allows men um, to attack other men through wives and daughters, and you begin to see people being named who are clearly being named for other people to make other people's for other people's agendas. So there's a lot of score settling there behind the scenes. Um, near the end of the epidemic is a marvelous, um, say marvelous, is an extremely revealing account of how a woman arrived at her testimony. Um, and she says she'd seen it, you know, she's basically asked, how did you, why did you confess to this? And how did you have these details? Um, and she basically says, look, she'd seen a cat outside her front door. So she mentioned a cat and she needed a date for her satanicism. So she picked a time when she had felt melancholy after losing a child. And it's, it's literally, literally like watching the Wicked Witch turn back into Miss Gulch, because you can just see how she, how she <laughs> together. Um, there's a difference gender-wise um, in how men and women dealt with the court, obviously, um, possibly because the men who came in, the men who were accused were largely ministers or sea captains or rich merchants. So they made for a very uh, different kind of defendant than the women whom I've just mentioned, who had probably never spoken with well-dressed, well-spoken authorities like this before in their lives. Um, men tended to deliver the most outlandish stories. They're the most imaginative, actually. Um, which somebody should really delve into. They were the, it was the men who tended to see the flying monkeys. Women saw much more pedestrian things. Mm -hmm. And men never got accused of long lists of ancient oddities. They never got accused of turning the butter or hiding the scissors or whatever. Um, 
they tended to have more difficulty accusing each other. Um, and women tended to plead uh, for the lives of others where men did not. And I probably should add that um, women never incriminated husbands or abandoned their old friends. Men repeatedly will point fingers at their wives, whom they say they'd always suspected were witches, but um, no woman, if I'm remembering correctly, no woman ever accuses a husband. Wow. Yeah. I should also say, you know, to, go, to go back to race for a minute, um, years afterward, when Cotton Mather, one of the ministers at the center of the story, goes back to puzzle again and again over what could have caused the witchcraft in Salem. In one of his last mentions of the witchcraft, he concludes that the Native Americans must have been to blame. So, we can, so it's a way of bringing them into the conversation. Very interesting. The finger pointing that you mentioned as relates to religion, it did a couple of things. One, it reminds me of Jesus sitting down and writing in the sand as men were trying to stone the prostitute. And I had one pastor said, uh, tell me that he was actually writing into the sand or the dirt, the names of the guys she had been with. And that's why they put down the rock. And so the pointing piece in religion is, is pretty old. But hearing you talk also makes me think about not only gender, but also the issues of femininity. You know, was there something not about just the women themselves, but about the type of women? Were the ones who were accused uh, less feminine than the others? Or am I just way off base about how, how they looked at it? Not off base. And, you know, one of the one of the perplexing and dangerous things about Salem is it, it, you, you can go down a rabbit hole. You can make up you only you can connect these people in almost any way you might like. The first three women obviously are misfits in some way, in one way or another. Um, the next person to um, start accusing begins to sort of spread the circle. And the next person to begin with the accusations actually is the person who is the first to name a minister. Um, after that, things really snowball. Things go in all kinds of directions. And there are young women, there are old women, there are women who've given birth eight times, there are women who've never given birth. There are um, in-laws accuse a, a woman whom they clearly did not want their son to marry. Daughters accuse mothers, mothers accuse daughters. In one case, in an Andover case, there are three generations who's, of women who accuse each other. So I think the, the more, the kernel that maybe needs to be stressed is that at a certain point, people realize it's simply safer to point a finger than to be accused themselves. And that's when the conf that's when the accusations just um, erupt. So it isn't at that point necessarily people thinking, oh, here's a woman who seems unfeminine, or here's a woman whom who always walks around with a book in her pocket, as one of the earliest um, accused witches did. I think at a certain point it's just a free for all, and people are just using this to um, to work off ancient grudges, to be able to settle scores. Um, as I said, it's often one man getting to another man through his through the women in his family. Um, it's often people who, who felt unrequited love or who were unhappy in love. There's every manner of, of reason, which is which is the beauty of witchcraft, right? It just it just takes care of all of these flying, all of these grudges and irritations can be can be exorcised. It's amazing. Well, Stacy, would you honor us by reading a passage? I would be delighted. I have to find the book. Here it is. How about that? So I should preface this just by saying that um, the belief in witchcraft survives the trials. 
So um, after the trials, many believed that innocents had indeed hanged, but they also were certain that real witches had escaped. And when Cotton Mather, the minister whom I just mentioned, goes back to Salem a year later, um, he loses his sermon notes and they turn, they'll turn up afterward, weeks later, in the streets of a neighboring town. And he, one of the best read men in America, um, will conclude that demons had stolen them. Hmm. For some of the things that plagued the 17th century New Englander, we have modern day explanations. For others, we do not. We've believed in any number of things, the tooth fairy, the free lunch, that turn out not to exist. We all subscribe to preposterous beliefs. We just don't know yet which ones they are. We too have been known to do insane things in the name of reason, to drown our private guilts in a public well, to indulge in a little delusion. We've all believed that someone had nothing better to do than to spend his day plotting against us. Though we tend not to conclude that specters have stolen our notes, we live with and we continue to relish perplexity every day. We love to hear that when that flash of lightning struck the man at prayer, it carried away the book of Revelation, but left the rest of the Bible intact. Even those of us who do not occupy the Puritan's high spiritual plane are susceptible to what Codmather termed the diseases of astonishment. Our appetite for the miraculous endures. We hope to locate the secret powers we didn't know we had, like the ruby slippers Dorothy finds on her feet and that Glinda has to tell her how to work. Where women are concerned, it's preferable that those powers manifest only when crisis strikes. The best heroine is the accidental one. Before and after the trials, New England feasted on sensational tales of female daring, the prowess its women displayed under Indian assault. Those captivity narratives provided something of a template for witchcraft. Everyone has a captivity narrative. Today, we call it memoir. Sometimes, too, we turn out to be captives of our ideas. Salem is in part a story of what happens when a set of unanswerable questions meets a set of unquestioned answers. It's fantastic. Stacey Schiff, thank you so much for giving us your time today. And I think for those of us, whether we're near or far, who can't get to Salem <laughs> this time of year where it, when it's usually quite crowded, well, we can read your book. So you've, you've given our listeners quite, quite a gift. Thank you so much for spending time with us. And we hope to have you back again on The Learning Curve to talk about one of your many works. <laughs> so um, we wish you health and happiness and, and a great Halloween. And the same to you. Thanks so much for having me. So Carl, I have a tweet of the week from Neil McCluskey, who we know hey, well Neil. at Cato. In mm. fact, my first interview on the show was with Neil. So uh, good to hear his name come up again. His tweet is very, very unique. Listen to this. He says, really? Um, Huckabee said that the overall investment in public education has been declining by many measures since Brown v. Board of Education oh, yeah, 1954. Yeah. And Neil says, I don't think that's true. He said, not real per pupil spending. He said, not even close. 1953-54, real per pupil spending, $3,305. Fast forward to 2016-17, real per pupil spending, $15,424. Exactly. That seems like an increase to me. 
what what are we doing with the 15k gerard is what i want to know <laughs> some communities around here it's like 10 20k higher than that i mean for real yeah and thanks to neil and others for keeping folks honest because boy it's one of the easiest and most popular things to say that our schools are underfunded and that purple spending has gone down and down and down. It's also one of the easiest claims to disprove. So keeping them honest, thank you much, uh, Neil McCluskey. All right. And next week, Gerard, we're, well, next week. Oh, um, next week. <laughs> oh. Where, where are we going to go? Where are we going to go? Are we going to have anything to talk about? I don't know. These are such boring times. We're, we're oh, gonna be, man. We're going to be at a loss for words. Yeah. yeah there's nothing, nothing going be, on. There's no, no nothing other spooky heated, things. Nothing, no. Uh, uh, no, nothing spooky to talk about. Nothing heated or controversial. You know, you and I are always on the same page about absolutely everything. So there'll be lots to agree on. Um, but, Gerard, we're going to be talking to Tara Ross nationally recognized author of why we need the electoral college. I mean, I don't know why it's appropriate to talk about the electoral college this time of year, but we're going to do it. We're going to do it. So (laughs) I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be probably a lot of sleepless nights next week is my bet. Just with waiting in anticipation to see what the heck happens. Well, everyone out there have a safe uh, and successful, but socially distanced Uh, Halloween for those who can have it and we will be back next week and we will talk about something uh, orange other than pumpkins. (laughs) You said it, not me. Well, we'll, I'll also give you an update on the bat because I know you're going to be waiting with bated breath. That's good. That's good. That's (laughs) good. Have a good one, Gerard. Take care.